0: What makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more, but you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more.
1: Welcome to Episode 660 with my guest, Felina Danalis. Uh I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the ping-pong balls bouncing around in our heads. Uh, this show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling i am not a therapist it's more like a waiting room and speaking of waiting rooms we had a really great session on the uh weekly sunday afternoon zoom hangout and uh it's by the way it's for people at the 20 dollars and above uh patreon monthly donation tier and we had about i don't know 22 people and it uh it was really great. We talked about the difficulty in sometimes finding a therapist who specializes in something because therapists will often list when you're doing a search anything that they are equipped to handle, um, but for many of us, we're looking at somebody who is beyond just being equipped to handle something, but something that somebody specializes in, and one of the things that we talked about was... um Finding a therapist who is experienced in dealing with a specific population who, who, it goes beyond them just kind of touching on that as one of many subjects in their education. I hope that, that makes sense, but uh, we talked about a lot of other stuff, but it was a really, really great, uh, great session. And, I uh, hope to, hope to see some more of you, uh, as I've mentioned the last uh, couple of months on the podcast, we are struggling financially, and I hate asking for help, but we do need we do need help. Uh, the podcast is losing money, and right now our Patreon subscriber n- number I think we're at seven hundred twenty eight people, and we need to get to about fifteen hundred monthly donors to be able to uh, to break even. Um, I walked away from a major source of income for the podcast for ethical reasons. And um, I don't really want to go into specifics uh, right now, Um, but uh, suffice it to say, uh, it was a decision that I feel very clean about, and it was not a difficult decision um, to make, but it leaves us with a budget shortfall. And if you get something out of the podcast, think of me as a busker in the uh, subway. If you sat and you listened to me for a, an hour and a half, uh, would you would you throw some change my way? Well, if you feel the same way about the podcast, consider uh, consider becoming a monthly donor or a one-time uh, donor. You can, you can do a one-time donation through PayPal, um, and uh, you can also Venmo uh, at mentalpod um, at gmail.com. And you can support us non-financially, go to Apple Podcasts, give us a nice review and a good rating, or spread the word through social media. Let's get to um, some surveys. This is from the FEARS survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself L, as in the letter L. Share something you fear. Boy, these, I'm just going to read them. I'm afraid I will die alone, that my life will prove empty and fruitless by the time I'm ready to die. I'm afraid I will never give myself totally and perfectly to another. I'm afraid I will never get myself together and that time is running out. I'm afraid I will end up under a bridge homeless. I am afraid I am unlovable. Man, you just get right to the point, and I think a lot of us relate to many of the things that you that you listed. Um, the one I related to is, I'm afraid I will never get myself together and that time is running out. Um, I don't know about you guys, but that is, it's almost like that ticking 60 minutes clock that, oh man, you... You are just not doing enough. You are just not getting it done. You are not living life right. And I think a lot of people can relate to the things that you wrote. And I'm sorry that your brain is fucking with you and telling you those things. But boy, you are not alone in that. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey <laughs> filled out by a guy who calls himself Kmart Fart. Those are your, mo- your highest value farts the k are there even kmarts anymore uh this is such an interesting question what would you like to ask paul have you ever been on a game show years ago i was and i'm talking maybe 20 years ago and i can't even remember i think it might have been on the animal planet channel and i think it might have had to do with animals um it's it's very hazy but uh I don't know. I was I was thinking what what kind of game show would would I do well on. And I thought if there if there was a game show where they gave you a situation and then the first one to buzz in with how you would make it all about you, I think I could do pretty well. Or if they had like one of those great race things where people are trying to get as fast as possible from one country to another, um I would do great if the points were awarded based on how many people you judged on your trip. I think I would crush that. Or like the game password. Those of you old enough to remember the game password. If you could do that, but the hints are how you would like that person to change without just coming out and saying what they need to change about themselves. I think I could. I think I could. I think I could do well at those. This is an interesting question from a woman who calls herself Ronald. She says, do you think therapy might not be for everyone? Therapy feels like a scam. I've tried other modalities, different modalities, but they all revert to waiting for me to speak, then repeating what I say. So that makes you angry. So that makes you sad with nothing helpful. Yes, that's what I just fucking said. I could talk to a brick wall and not want to drop kick someone in the throat for free. Why go to therapy if all they do is repeat and sit there staring at me? My current therapist said that I'm supposed to come up with everything we talk about. I asked her to ask a question and she asked me about the weather. I've been to at least 20 and then in parentheses have stuck with some for months to years and don't see how they're worth it. Are they just witnesses and nothing else? I did have one refer me to an ADHD diagnostician, but other than that, it's been not great. Thank you for asking that. And that, you know, that's a really interesting question. You know, I don't know if I could say that, that therapy is, I guess I could say therapy is not for everyone, but I think chemistry is a really, really important part of therapy and different modalities work well for different people. And the therapist kind of allowing you to initiate conversations I know is very common and it works for a lot of us. It works for me. Um, But each person is different, so I I certainly don't want to... you know negate that and say well you're not being patient enough or you're not doing it right but i think um i think you you are experiencing what you are experiencing and um it sounds really frustrating and and i'm sorry that you're you're going through that man this is from the psych ward experiences And this is filled out by a gender-fluid person who refers to themselves as dissociation who? Dissociation what? And they write, Both my fiancé and I were voluntarily hospitalized prior to knowing each other. I walked myself to my town's hospital ER after having severe suicidal thoughts and nearly passing to the act. Um, He had a bad quote, C. Red, unquote, moment and called the cops on himself. Um, And he brought him, they brought him to the hospital just a few days shy of my stay there. Uh, Describe your experience. During our stay at the local hospital, we were both put on gurneys in the hallway of the emergency department around the nurse's station. So many beeping sounds, sounds of the elderly, moaning and groaning and discomfort and or pain. One demented patient yelled randomly throughout the day and night. We were both during our time there right next to COVID and patients who were only separated by a cloth room. To say the least, it was an unpleasant experience, but I'm also being honest, I don't remember certain spurts of my stay there, unbeknownst to me at the time, I was actually disassociating very hard. After seven days in the hospital and two attempts later, I was transferred to the nearest mental health ward. I was accompanied by an extra staff member of the hospital to get to the psych ward by taxi. She dropped me off at the entrance for the elevator, for which I was hyper-stimulated by the bright lights, oh no, uh, for which I was hurdled into with a handful of workers and brought up to the unit that would be my home for the following two months. I was hyper-stimulated by the bright lights, the workers all around me, and all the newness, but most of all taken back by the fact that it looked more like jail than the grippy sock vacation stays I've seen constantly on TikTok. I freaked the fuck out, to say the least. My food was taken away from me and put into a cupboard, that I could only have access to on the weekends. Um, As soon as I was allowed to call my dad, because I could only remember his phone number since they also took away my phone, I cried saying I don't want to be here, Uh, not being able to articulate anything else I was feeling. All I remember of what he said is along the lines of, well, this is what you chose, or isn't this what you wanted? Strict rules were in place, meals during certain hours with no phone access during those times, enforced nap twice a day, and no touching others. Little did I know that just a few days and weeks later, I'd secretly be breaking that rule. After a week of this jail like sentence, I heard that we were getting another inpatient in our unit. I stared out and saw not only this pretty nice looking guy, but the same staff member who had escorted me from the hospital to here a week prior. The guy looked a little lost. Knowing how I felt getting in there here, I spoke to him. Hey, you're from town, right? He seemed a little taken aback for a moment, but agreed. I explained to him, and the start of something special happened. We kept getting closer and closer to each other, talking about everything and nothing 24-7 for nearly two months. He got his permanent leave a week before I eventually got mine. That week alone was hard, but I survived and was actually ready to leave that godforsaken place that I have a love-hate relationship with. Some staff were delightful, others mediocre. Food sucked as a ve- vegetarian, parentheses barf. When I got out, he came over with some stuff and ended up never leaving. It's been nearly a year now since the beginning of all of this, and even though He's had a couple of other hospital visits and one psych ward stay in the spring. We're both in a much greater place in our lives. Thanks to the psych ward, I met the love of my life. So kind of an awfulsome moment. That is an awfulsome moment, and that is a t-shirt. Thanks to the psych ward, I met the love of my life. Oh my God, thank you for that. This is from the Body Shame Survey, and this is filled out by uh, a guy who calls himself Nikki. Uh, what do you like or dislike about your body? I don't like the size of my dick. It's slightly above average, but that's not good enough. I always wished it was massive, like in porn, when the girl holds it up to her forearm and it's the same size. Well, Nikki, I got to a workaround. Uh, just find a girl who... <laughs> Find a girl who's in hospice. Yeah, that's right. I just made that joke. Go to the website and send me your angry emails. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what is? When breath becomes air is available wherever books are sold learn more at prh.com/breath
0: CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you because at CarMax we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car you should love your car that's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer so don't settle Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be.
1: And then uh, finally, this is from the love survey filled out by it's all right here. No, it's yes, it's all right here. And they write, I love watching my cat when she's about to pounce on something on all fours, low to the ground with her butt slightly tilted in the air, tensely. Still yet relaxed and focused, her pupils dilated. A wiggle starts moving through her body until she shakes her butt a few times and goes for it. It's anticlimactic, leaving me wanting more, but she doesn't seem frustrated or angry. She moves on. This one, I'm like, what? I love when my dog, a 55-pound scruffy-looking guy, is sitting in the back seat riding in the car with me, he, and then parentheses, it's still a mystery to me, unbuckles his seatbelt, climbs into the front passenger seat by crawling between me uh, and my seat, sits down and puts his left paw on my right shoulder like, we got this. <laughs> First of all, why is he in a seatbelt and how the fuck does he get out of the seat? Maybe he wiggles out of the seatbelt, but... uh. I love finishing a book closing it for the last time with an exhale of accomplishment i love that one and i love sitting around a table for a home-cooked meal with chosen family especially after some time apart and i feel at home again my consciousness might be disintegrated
0: heavy
2: weighted blanket on my brain symptomatically and i can't think straight things present themselves for a reason and i can't see straight i couldn't even drive the first movie that i remember watching with him
1: post-traumatic stress i was
2: like five years old was pulp fiction
1: and moral injury i
2: would act out the scenes gonna go to hell with my barbies
1: The greatest source of our suffering... Ordinary is where all the good stuff happens. ...is our unwillingness to experience and accept our emotions. It is
2: very hard to heal in dark isolation. I developed compassion. It is in connection and community where that happens.
1: The process was nearly unbearable. Like, I'm going to have to kill myself. We'll be right back after this. (laughs) I am here with Felina Danalas, and uh, I was recommended... You were recommended to me by a mutual friend Graham elwood shout out to uh to Graham, and he mentioned that you're a somatic experiencing practitioner, and I cannot rave enough about somatic experiencing. Tell our listeners what somatic experiencing is
2: mm, I love that question. thank you paul and i love um I love hearing about graham because he is um and the episode that you guys did together about money was absolutely over the top fantastic by the way so good um and let me start off before i talk about sc just thanking you for doing this public service
1: oh you're welcome
2: it's incredible what you do like two hours one or two hours every week for so many years like there's so many people that you are helping and i just want to thank you that at the outset yeah because it's a labor of love clearly (laughs) so that's really important to say yeah So somatic experiencing is, there's a lot of ways of describing it, but one of the ways is if you think about how most people come into some kind of a healing or therapeutic setting, it's because they know that there's something wrong, right? And it's like a very cognitive thing. And so a lot of us understand why we are, like, what happened in our childhoods, right? What happened when we were little? What screwed us up? Why we are the way we are? And maybe we spend years and years in talk therapy, but things don't change very frequently, right? So we might be understanding our issues really well, but not kind of transforming them. And what I've observed that happens in somatic experiencing is that we can actually move out of the past because our physiology can shift, so somatic experiencing helps us shift our physiology from being in a state of fight flight or freeze into being in present time.
1: Talk about Peter Levine.
2: Oh, where to begin? Who is the founder
1: of somatic experiencing yes. and the research that he is it waking the tiger? That's
2: correct. The yeah. book he
1: wrote, which is a groundbreaking book about trauma being trapped in the body in a way that no amount of talking about it is going to release.
2: Yeah, that's right. So Peter discovered he was a researcher and um, did a lot of work with NASA and uh, was also working, studying animals. And what he observed was that even though animals in the wild experienced really traumatic events, they didn't have the same kinds of symptoms that human beings did. And so he got really, really curious about that. So you can imagine, you know, you've watched Animal Kingdom and you see they chase, they hunt, they fight, um, they they attack. They go through all of these experiences, but animals don't tend to have experiences of becoming traumatized the way people are. And he got very, very curious about that. And so the book, Waking the Tiger, is his first of many attempts. Um, and he's written a number of fantastic books that I highly recommend folks have a look at which t- describes a little bit about the behavior that we see in the nervous systems of animals and how that's the same and how that's different from what we see in human beings.
1: Um, talk about the shaking that animals do after an intense encounter.
2: Yeah, that's one of the big, big points that he discovered. So so let's say there is a, um, a small animal. Let's say, I don't know, let's say a raccoon. Um, and it is being chased or let's use the example of let's say it's an an impala and a cheetah let's do some bigger animals right so an impala is like a deer so let's say one day the impala is in um, this kind of lush green environment there's water it's kind of you know frolicking there with the other um, animals And it hears a sound. And the first thing that the animal will do, it will stop, it will startle, and it will turn its head and it will orient towards the sound, right? It's not really sure. And what's happening in that moment of that startle response is that the animal is kind of processing to determine what kind of an animal made that sound, to know if it's a safe animal. Is it a little guy like a raccoon or is it going to be something big like a cheetah? So let's say the first time the impala hears the sound, it, um, it determines that it is a, a small animal. And so it's like, okay, it's a small animal. Let's say it's a raccoon. The Impala knows that it will be able to get into a fight with the raccoon and it will be able to win. So it doesn't really get worried about it. It kind of mm-hmm. goes back and it stops uh, startling. It stops um, orienting to the threat. And it goes back to drinking water, being peaceful, chilling out, hanging out with its Impala friends. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it, there's no stress there. In the event, though, let's say another sound happens and then the impala turns the second time. And this time, it's not sure what kind of an animal it is. Maybe it sounds like it's a bigger animal that could be the size of an impala. The animal might start getting ready to fight this, right? So it's 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 mobilizing lots of chemicals. Lots of cortisol is moving through. Adrenaline is moving through. Muscle... Um, uh blood is going from the digestive organs to the extremities and to the muscles so that the animal can get ready to run. Let's say on the third event, the impala turns and, and there's a sound and it thinks it's a cheetah, right? And so the impala thinks, uh oh, very quickly, this doesn't even think actually, it's not, a, it's an instinctive process. The impala gets this intuition very quickly that, oh, I am not going to be able to fight this cheetah um, and so I better start running. So we see this high-speed chase. The Impala starts running. The cheetah's right after it. So they're running, and they're running, and they're running. And let's say the cheetah's getting closer and closer because the cheetah's the fastest land animal. It's going to get really close to the Impala. And what we'll see mm-hmm. in sometimes really unusual, in what looks like a very unusual circumstance, is as a life threat, as a life-saving measure... Just before the cheetah bites into the impala, you might see the impala actually stopping and freezing and laying over and just completely falling over. It stops racing. It stops this incredible mobilized force that's been happening in the nervous system, and it stops. Why does it do this? For a couple of reasons. One, because freezing is the best chance of survival that the impala has because cheetahs aren't scavengers, right? So cheetah is not going to eat an animal that it thinks is dead. So playing dead might actually give the Impala a chance to survive. The other reason, however, that it does that is because freezing produces opioids. So that in the event that the cheetah bites into the Impala, it is kind of one of the ways we talk about it is like it's nature's mercy, right? It provides Mm -hmm. these opioids, this pain relief. So it's not conscious of the um, experience that it goes through. So let's say the impala is frozen, it's on the ground, the cheetah comes around It starts sniffing at it, right, to see if it's alive. It's kind of poking at it, it's sniffing at it to see, is this animal alive? Because the cheetah needs that kind of prey, predator energy, that vibe to eat the uh, impala. And let's say the cheetah gets frustrated and it's like, you know what, this isn't worth it, I'm out of here, I'm going to go explore something else. The cheetah leaves. The impala continues to stay on the ground. It continues to appear frozen for a moment or two. And then when its nervous system determines that it's safe, the impala will do exactly what you mentioned. It will get up on all fours and it will start shaking and trembling. And it will sometimes take a couple of really deep, spontaneous breaths that are like resetting its nervous system. And then the impala goes right about its business there's no traumatic residue from this experience. It's shaken it off and it goes back to having that natural kind of resilience. It doesn't have a traumatic experience, a a traumatic memory and thinks, oh God, I'm never gonna go to that pond to have water again. It just moves on with its life.
1: And the, the shaking, is it like when a dog is wet that that kind of shaking the way it, it, it shakes its coat.
2: It can be, it can be. And and when we work in the therapeutic context, the shaking is actually much, much smaller. So it's actually a shaking from the autonomic nervous system. So it can look really, really subtle actually. Sometimes we don't even catch it. But it's not these it's not like big muscle movements. It's not necessarily really exaggerated. Gotcha. When you see it in animals, it is. The reason it looks different in human beings very frequently is because we have this kind of frontal cortex which we know all about which can sometimes get us into big trouble. <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh, and that's what I experienced when I did uh somatic experiencing. I've I've shared a bit about it in the in the past but I um I just okay. want to re-share it to um just give a high five to how profound it was for me. And I'll try to condense it but I'd gone to Maybe six sessions, and I was skeptical as hell. And I spoke up the the first or second session. I I was like, I think this is a lot of smoke and mirrors, and I'm a little turned off by the Buddha statue and the incense. and And she laughed and she said, yeah. when I when I first uh, started being a client for Somatic Experiencing, I thought the the same thing. This isn't, this isn't going to work. And she, she said, just, I encourage you to be patient. Um, And I guess one of the things that she wanted to do was to ease me into, and there was almost no talking. It was just get present, feel your body reminding me I'm safe in this space and I'm doing an inward eye roll. And then about six sessions in, and, and I told her some big pieces about, you know, some medical trauma I'd experienced and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And uh, the sixth session in, um, there were just like all these signs that the universe was, my dog had just died and her, I'm on laying on the table and her cat gets up on the table and she said, that's weird. He He's never jumped up on a table with a with a client before. And she said, it's so weird. He's acting like a dog. And all of a sudden, I was like, oh, this is Herbert, like the spirit of Herbert coming in to comfort me. And there's also a part of my brain going, oh, you new age asshole. Stop! <laughs> You're just whatever. Been and, in LA
2: too long. Yes. And so <laughs> I was
1: just telling him that part of my brain just experiences just be in the present moment. And all of a sudden... I started crying because I felt like something in the universe was like, this is, this is where you're supposed to be and you are loved and, and you are safe. And I started like shaking and I was transported back. I knew I was in this room, but I was transported back to being that naked child on that table, um, with a doctor and a herd of medical students around poking at my testicles and just leaving my body and and feeling completely unprotected by my mom who's just sitting there letting all of this happen and i was able to first of all there was the the shaking i could feel almost like a volcano and it wasn't anger it was fear it was just pure fear and sadness and i just started verbalizing the things that I couldn't say. And, and I was saying, please help me, please help me. And, and the practitioner, you know, she just kind of laid her hand on me and she's like, you're safe. I'm here. You're safe. And I just gave into it because there was a part of my brain that was judging me. And I've been in therapy and all that other stuff long enough to know that is not helpful, that part of your brain that is judging this. Go with it. What do you have to lose? And I felt different after mm-hmm. it was it was over. I felt a lightness. I felt, and I had experienced kind of the same thing with EMDR as well. Mm-hmm. And I became a believer after that so when graham reached out um to me and said i think uh felina would be a a, a good guest i was like yes because i'm a believer and that so i imagine my experience is is not unusual for people
2: i just want to thank you so much for naming that and for sharing that with me and with your audience because hearing that kind of level of granularity is really, really powerful and really helpful. And it's like, oh, I just noticed, and I can't help this as an occupational hazard, but like, I just noticed that you settled a little bit more deeply and you just took a deeper breath right here, right oh, really? now. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Just even naming, having that really resourcing experiencing experience is resourcing. And so one of the things that's really beautiful about SE is that when material arises, like of the, of the, of the kind that it came up for you and everybody's different, We can take those resources outside of that space and actually begin to embody them. I I, I recently had a situation with um, a woman who came to me whose um, husband has um, terminal cancer, and she has been his primary caregiver and his companion, obviously, in, in all of this endeavor. And, you know, her anxiety has been through the roof. And I'm sure many of our listeners can, can, you know, can relate to having our own anxiety and then having the anxiety of being a caregiver, right? And that extra level of burden of not knowing if your person is going to be there. And she did some work in her session. um, And then when she she went to go see a movie with her husband a couple of weeks after our session, and he uh, went to go to the bathroom and he didn't come back for a really long time. And she started getting that, what we call an SE activation, some charge in her system. Some people would call that anxiety. I like to call it activation or charge. And she was able to remember the tools that we had used in her session and bring them into the room with her. For instance. So th- for instance, a memory of a loved one, right? The memory of her beloved grandmother who had been a really strong supporter and a resource to her. And so that just gave her a moment of feeling supported, having her grandmother at her back, feeling the support of her grandmother so that she didn't have to go racing out of the of the theater, you know, frantic looking for her husband. Because, of course, when he eventually came back in the room, he was like, oh, you know, John called. I was on the phone with him. I took the call. He had completely forgotten, right? Because, you know, he was just doing it. He was he was doing him. And so she was there having this, you know, this experience of anxiety. Maybe something happened to him. Maybe he fell. Maybe he got hurt and trying to navigate that tension of, do I tend to my own system? Do I pretend everything is fine? Do I run out of the room? And just by having a, some extra resource that she had gotten in her SE session, she was able to stay grounded and regulate it. And when her husband finally did come in, what she was able to do was not be mad at him, right? Of Like, where were you? Like, I was worried sick about, right? The kind of thing that we can do. She was able to be happy that he was actually back. Right. Which is a tremendous difference from what had been in the past for her, which was she would get anxious and then she would get mad at him when he came back, which you can imagine.
1: So often fear goes right to anger.
2: That's right. That's right. That's right. That's
1: right. Yeah. And it's always so weird when you're the person on the receiving end that somebody's worry about you is coming across as rage. It's like, wow, that doesn't feel like love. That's
2: right. That's exactly right. And so she was able to be much more supportive of her husband and of herself by having this resource that she had gotten in her SE session. And so what's, you know, when I talk about trauma, one of the definitions I like to use is that Trauma is anything our over, that overwhelms our capacity to cope and leaves us feeling helpless, hopeless, and unable to respond. And so, our experience of trauma on what is overwhelming—and I'm doing air quotes mm-hmm. for folks who are listening—I talk a lot with my hands. So I'm Just mm-hmm. I'm just linking that. Perfect on an audio podcast. Perfect on audio. Exactly. It's a it's a it's a hazard mm-hmm. of being Greek. Um, where was I going with this, Paul? Um.
1: So. Uh, the the. When the person soothes soothes, uh, themselves, uh, finds a way to... Resources, resources.
2: This is where we were going. Yes. So um, what is considered considered overwhelming to your nervous system might not be to my nervous system, because we have different resources, internal and external. And I wanted to name this really in particular, and actually Graham and I were talking about this recently, how... One of the great lacunae in the in the self-help world, the th- healing world, the therapeutic world, is that we tend to stay in the kind of the Freudian individualist model. Right. Keep in mind, like things, practices like psychotherapy and even um, healing, that's kind of an individualistic individ- on an individual level basically doesn't start until the 19th century with with Freud. Right. Give or take. I'm just generalizing hugely for folks who don't like to geek out on this stuff. And really, the purpose of it was to make sure that people would conform to bourgeois expectations, right? That was really the purpose of psychotherapy. That really hasn't changed in 100 years. And so as somebody who has pretty strong political views, and my first half of my career, I was highly political and you know, worked as a diplomat and, and did lots of different things. I think it's really important for those of us who are talking about wellness and mental health and and well-being to make sure we're always talking about context. So there's the individual nervous system, and then there's the context, the context that we're operating in. And that can be um, these kinds of systemic issues, um, including capitalism, that uh, in the therapeutic setting, we don't love to talk about, but we have to, and I do.
1: I mean, in a way, isn't it kind of the wild? Absolutely. Isn't it kind of the jungle?
2: Yeah, say more about that.
1: Yeah, the, the cult of more. That's right. Uh, you know, we talk about cults, but we rarely talk about the cult that capitalism will bring you inner peace. If you get enough stuff, you get enough recognition, you get enough power, um, you will be comfortable in your skin. Your needs will be taken care of. And it wasn't until I really started delving into my issues in getting help that I realized there's a spiritual, not a religious, a spiritual component to health and wellness that capitalism cannot address. I love money. I wish I had you know, a million dollars. And there's a part of my brain that tells me if you had that, you would be able to relax. And intellectually, I know that's a lie. So yeah. it's very, it's very much like a, a pot of honey, I think, that draws yeah. a lot of us in and kind of lulls us to sleep. And for many of us, the gift of trauma or hardship is that we are forced f- to find another way to, to try to fill our soul, to bring meaning and purpose. And those are the sedatives yes. that I have found is yeah. meaning, purpose, connection, yeah. uh, shared struggle.
2: Yeah. And you know what I really love about what you're naming, Paul, is like there are ways in which these systems can um, can can bring us away from what really matters and what really a connection is all about. And there's ways that they can bring us closer. And so what I think about very often is in the settings of mental health, right? So many of your listeners Maybe like we at all at all ages and all um, ranges of the income and wealth spectrum, right? Let's assume that they're just the, the the average American listener, right? People who are living on the streets, people who are living in you know who are who are billionaires, you know, ready to rocket off into space. And if you have those kinds of listeners, I want your names because <laughs> I'd like to have a conversation with you. But basically, we, we have people at every every um, at every phasm of of the income spectrum but what has not yet happened in my estimation and what i've observed is that in the therapeutic setting we're still not talking about systemic issues so sometimes therapists who are bipox therapists for example um, are going to talk about being culturally competent. And there are people at the margins, like you're in Los Angeles, where people are super aware of these kinds of dynamics. But, um, you know, you also have listeners in Ohio. You also have listeners in, in in Louisville and, you know, and in Mississippi and all over the country where people may not be wanting to talk about systemic issues. and Or f- even aware. Precisely. And what I feel is really important is when we're accessing mental well-being, mental wellness is we have to talk about the systems that we're operating in. And if those of us who are practitioners, and I'm speaking to the practitioners, the therapists, the doctors, the the healers who are listening right now, we have to start talking about systemic issues. We have to talk about poverty. We have to talk about inequality. We have to talk about the the impact that that has on the nervous system. Mm -hmm. So there's a fantastic book that came out a number of years ago, um, by a psychologist named Keith Payne. Have you heard of the book, no. The Broken Ladder?
1: I've not. How do you spell his last name?
2: P-A-Y-N-E. Okay. So his book was um, on um, one of Obama's reading lists many years ago. Highly recommend you get him on the on the podcast. Fantastic. So his book is called The Broken Ladder, and it's about income inequality. And he doesn't write it from the perspective of an economist or a political scientist. He's actually a psychologist. And what he talks about in that book is how income and wealth inequality are actually causing increasing anxiety, not just for the people for at the bottom of the spectrum, but for people at the top. So years ago, for example, I so I was raised in a, in a working poor family. My parents were immigrants to this country. They struggled. I'm a first-generation college student. You know, I made it to Georgetown and Johns Hopkins and still have the student debt to prove it. (laughs) And um, I have passed for wealthy for much of my life because I'm, I'm quote unquote articulate. I speak a bunch of languages. I can pass for wealthy. But I don't have the kind of generational privilege that a lot of people who have the kind of skin privilege I have have. And so I feel like I get to talk about some issues related to class that maybe other people who are in my profession don't get to talk about. And so I was um, working at a place called the Golden Door, which is a spa in San Marcos. It's like 10 grand a week. It's very shishi. It's fantastic. It's beautiful. Anybody like, you know. Um, and the kind of anxiety that I was seeing in the folks who were there who were the 1% was through the roof. Now, people who are at the bottom, the, the, the rest of the 99% of us might see somebody like that and think, why on what on earth do they have to be anxious about? What on earth kinds of problems do they have? And yet, when your nervous system knows that you are the beneficiary of this inequality, you also can't rest. So think about animals. Animals, think about our, our cousins, the primates, right? The, the chimps, the apes, the all of those animals. Like, if you and I were both gorillas and you were six inches, you know, taller than me. And we were like figuring out who's going to eat more. You were going to get a little bit more food, right? Like that's normal. You're a little bit bigger. You're going to get a little bit more food. You're not going to get 126,000% more food than I will because there's something about our mammalian systems that register what feels fair. And so this book, this, um, uh, the broken ladder really, really talks about how this, this quote unquote mental health crisis is also a systemic crisis. And those of us who are politically conscious and aware need to be supporting our therapists in also talking about these issues because they won't do it because they haven't necessarily been trained.
1: And I would imagine for a lot of them, that's a third rail, depending on the clientele that they have. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, if they have somebody who uh, is just kind of a pure capitalist, um, dog-eat-dog Darwinist, uh, they probably don't want to hear that. And for the therapist, it's probably in- intimidating or potentially financially threatening to to talk about that. Yeah. And we haven't even touched on the fact that we live in a country where you can be bankrupt by having cancer.
2: That's right. Yeah. And that's you raise a really, really good point because, and so that's why I think the more of us who are um, who have a reasonable amount of safety can talk about class and the impact on mental well-being, the more it becomes um, just part of just like we've we've been having conversations about race and, and that has become a much more normalized part of 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 discourse. We need to start having these conversations about class because of because we have to educate people. So I had an experience years ago. Is it is it okay if I share with a, a client experience? Yeah. So I was working with a man who was in his 60s. He was the head of a very prominent nonprofit running um, that was doing uh, the performing arts, like one of the 10 in, largest in the United States. And um, he had been in psychotherapy for 30 years, had lots of anxiety, lots of depression. And we're in a session together one day, and we're doing some SE and... Once again, he's talking about how lonely he he was and there were other things. And he was, you know, a lovely human being and he had certain marginalized identities. He he was gay, but he also had a lot of privileged identities. He was white, male, highly educated, wealthy. So so he was, you know, he was walking like most of us. He was he was, you know, a, a different um, kind of intersectional identities. And we're t- he's talking about this loneliness and he's talking about his anxiety. And I asked him where he lived. And he said, well, you know, I, I, I live in, in this city. And I said, okay, do you live in a house? Do you live in an apartment? Do you live in a condo? He said, I live in a house. And I said, do you live in a gated community by any chance? And he said, yeah. And, and so I asked him, I said, do you think that there might be any relationship between the fact that you feel lonely and isolated from people to the fact that your built environment keeps you hidden behind a wall?
1: And what did he say?
2: He said that in 30 years of psychotherapy, he had never thought of that before. To me, that and that opened up a conversation that opened up a conversation around looking at our built environment, the structure, the physical structure of where we move, what we take as normal, because when we talk about our, quote unquote, mental well-being, our mental health. We're, we're, we're telling this story that we are as if we were separate from our environments, which we're not, right? The problem of modernity, I've heard it, Virginia Woolf say, I was listening to a great podcast on the uh, London Review of Books, I think it was by uh, Virginia Woolf talking, and it was a, a, a piece about how she said that the, the nature of reality is hybrid. We are both individual and collective, and we have to walk those creative tensions at the same time. And so for him, it was the first time that he began to think of his personal problems in the context in which he was operating. And what's beautiful about that, Paul, to speak to your example, right? Like, let's say there's some guy who comes in and and he's, you know, loving capitalism. Capitalism is doing lots of great things for him, but he's lonely and he's isolated and he can't get along with his wife and he can't get along with Mm -hmm. his children. And you start very slowly talking about structural issues There might be an opening, right, for people to start to see how if we aren't all well, none of us can be well. And that's not that's not really a political thing. That's kind of a human thing.
1: Do you think it goes back to kind of the genetic code that that evolved when we were all just in villages and you couldn't have the anonymity of fuck everybody else? I'm getting my own.
2: Absolutely. 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 There's a there's a wonderful de- documentary called The Century of the Self. Have you seen this? No. Oh my gosh, it's so good. Um, I forget who made it. Somebody's going to tell us, but um, a wonderful documentary, and it talks about this creation of this idea of the self. Right? We we all have, you know, the this this these uh, these modern identities that are separate from our place spiritually, um, psychologically, physically. Uh, in the United States, we have this cult idea this fantasy of individualism right which is clearly like not reality right you were born in somebody's uterus right you came out of a uterus sorry like you might want to say you're self-made but you're not really and so um so we i think it's really important both in the spiritual communities to talk about this obviously and that there's a much um that's done in a much healthier way i think in spiritual communities to talk about interbeing or oneness I, I studied and, and taught Buddhism many years and, and I, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh talked about interbeing and that feels very true and um, that can also lead into spiritual bypass, which is very, very, um, you know, can be really, really dangerous for people who are struggling. Um, and I've seen what can happen with spiritual bypass as well.
1: Are you comfortable talking about your issues, your struggles? I know as a practitioner, there's a line to ride where you don't want to over overshare
2: yeah i can start by saying you know for me i think the the biggest place that i can you know i was raised in a home where there's a tremendous amount of intergenerational trauma and what i learned to do was like what everybody does as a kid which is to adapt and the best way that i could adapt to a system that was very unstable very chaotic violent at times very unpredictable under resourced was try to find something control and as a little girl I found food, right? I found food and it was my best friend. Um, there were, I remember very, very vividly, you know, there were fights in the house and I would grab my stickers bar and I would go hide in the closet and I would cry, but I would have my chocolate bar. And that was the only thing that could soothe me. That was the only thing in this wild, unpredictable, chaotic environment that helped me Manage my nervous system.
1: I think we got a new Snickers commercial.
2: Ooh, say more.
1: <laughs> the cure to trauma. <laughs> How fucking great would be that be if they released that as a as an ad just to just to see what the reaction uh-huh. would be? I'm
2: sure a lot of people could relate yes, to that. <laughs>
1: it's Snickers. It's not just for little crying Greek girls. I love it yeah so uh how did that then evolve
2: so that evolved uh, in a in a lifelong obsession for the next 35 years with controlling food and my body and 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 sugar and doing what looks normal right we you know in our culture the ways that women in particular and this is you know this is a gendered thing still it's not only you know i know many also i also have many brothers who who, who experience this as well and um Uh, all over the place. And it, but it looked normal enough, right? I didn't become um, anorexic and need to be on a, on a, on a feeding tube. You know, I wasn't somebody who was on television because I was, you know, I was, I looked, um, you know, I was maybe 45 pounds heavier than I am now. So I looked in the realm of like, oh, she's, you know, you know I, I was i was regularly told by my mother you know if you just lost a few pounds you'd be perfect right <laughs> which is which is what every little girl wants sure, to hear from her
1: <laughs> absolutely
2: every little girl wants to hear this from her mother and um and i remember i had a, i have a cousin so we're the same exact age she's 3 years 3 months younger than i am and she's super petite and i'm you know i'm average height average build like my size is nothing special but she was super super petite and i remember we would play in the pool and the grown-ups would throw us around and everybody would comment on my cousin and say oh isn't she so cute and she's you know just a little adorable and she's so and what i heard was that my body was bad and wrong
1: nobody said that and they called you cannonball which was really not fair
2: (laughs) They didn't, they didn't, they didn't call me cannonball, but I always got the message of like, you. if you were just like, you're just a little, you know, I'm, 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 I'm just gently touching Paul. So he knows that he's, you know, he would just tweaked himself just a tiny bit, then he'd okay. be perfect. That was very much the feeling. And so that was the strategy that I used to survive going, you know, getting through high school, which was its own kind of hellscape going to college, graduate school, making up, you know, starting a career, becoming a diplomat. Up until my mid-30s, I was using food and controlling my body and my weight to function in the world the way I I thought I was supposed to. I thought I was doing what I was supposed to be doing.
1: It it, it was kind of, this sounds corny, but it was the gate of your gated community.
2: It was the gate of my gated community. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it took a long time for me to start unpacking and understanding wow like a that was a life-saving strategy and like i give kudos to that little girl today for doing whatever the hell she had to fucking do to survive right because sure. lots of little girls don't survive you know and lots of little boys and transgender kids don't survive i did you know and i was i was i was blessed with grace in that And so what I saw was um, that that was that was a that was a trauma management strategy. And so it's really wonderful today when I have clients who who come in and who are like, maybe they're using drugs, maybe they're using sex, maybe they're using porn, maybe they're using shopping, maybe they're using all of the above food, what have you. It's like, these are just management strategies. Let's take the freaking shame away from all of it. Because when we have well-regulated nervous systems, those things begin to fall away. And that's why for folks who are in recovery and maybe relapsing in and out, I cannot strongly enough advocate, go find a somatic experiencing practitioner, because there's nothing quite like doing the trauma resolution work. To help regulate your nervous system so you don't have to keep relapsing, right? Like for folks who are in the program and they go in and out and in and out mm-hmm. and in and out, or, and they, and they just can't stop using their substances, they're doing that for survival. Yeah. No judgment. No judgment. I don't care what the drug is. I don't care what the strategy is. I don't care if you're sleeping with 100 people. I don't care if you're doing crap. I don't care. You're a human being doing whatever you need to do. In the absence of a well-regulated nervous system and in the absence of the social, financial, psychological, and material support to give your system that regulation. And I say, God bless you.
1: I mean, it really is about connection and tools. Just Mm -hmm. upgrading your tools. So many of us roll into support group meetings thinking, I'm a failure, I'm a bad person, I'm dirty, I'm dishonest, whatever, Mm -hmm. whatever it is. And we never unless we stick around long enough to make progress and get to feel that sense of community and to let go of some of the shame we realize it's about tools i i was trying to perform surgery with a sledgehammer on myself <laughs> that's, that's, rather than blindfolded yeah. <laughs> rather than you know letting people teach me about tools yeah
2: and and so that's one of the things that I think is so important to name, Paul, is that anybody who's listening, you know, you've taken a tremendous step of, of opening your mind and your heart to be listening to this conversation. And I want to invite you to take the next step, which is to talk to somebody, right? Like you're always talking about how important it is to connect. And one of the beauties of what we have right now is we have podcasts. We have so many options for hearing information and getting education And then we need to take the risks of allowing ourselves to actually receive support, which is much, much more vulnerable. It is much more vulnerable. I mean, before I got help for my issues around food, I was the girl who was like, give me the fucking book and leave me alone. I don't want to be hanging out with you people. I'm not interested in community. I'm not interested in talking. I'm not interested in hearing about your problems, because if you're as fucked up as I am, (laughs) I don't want to know about it. I don't want
1: to be bored on top of all of this.
2: Exactly. I got my own problems, right? I'm like, give me the book and leave me the hell alone. Because that is what had enabled me to survive as a kiddo, isolation. And a big part of the work that I do with folks today on healing trauma is around boundaries. Because what I realize is that, that isolation is a boundary. Isolation is having a wall for a boundary. It's having those 10-foot walls outside of your gated community saying, ain't nobody going to get in here. Right. I wonder why I'm lonely. <laughs> right.
1: right, and, and, you know, continue to continue that analogy, I had the walls. Nobody got in. And what I learned in recovery was it's okay to have 10-foot walls, but have a door here and there, you know, with a little peephole. And you can go, oh, yeah, you're safe. I have experience with you before. Uh and and it's it's okay yeah. to to let you in. Yeah. And for people who have had their trust abused again and again by people, asking them to reach out and get vulnerable and help is like saying, I know you made it. You were in a burning building the first twenty years of your life. There is help. It's in the burning building. <laughs> <laughs> turn turn around. And it, it it's but it's not really it just looks like yeah. A burning building. But it's it's terrifying.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And so anybody who's listening, anybody who does that, I consider a hero. Right. This is this is the real work of this is really what's uh, what it means to be a hero. And 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 what's great about, you know, looking at all of this kind of healing from the the perspective of the nervous system, which is I mean, it's it's really trendy these days. It's really funny how, like, I'm hearing people talking about their nervous systems all the time. It's it's really interesting. But the thing that's nice about it and really empowering, um, and that is that, you know, not only, I mean, children can learn it, anybody can learn this language, but it takes a lot of the stigma away when we're just talking about the experience of the nervous system. So for example, um, when folks have anxiety, when folks, you know, people come to me with different kinds of things very often it's anxiety depression it's like things that are quote unquote mental experiences um there's also f- people who have physical symptoms autoimmune conditions chronic fatigue fibromyalgia those those kinds of stress-related disorders um they um i i work with a lot of bicultural people and multi and folks who kind of are walking i call us unicorns right people who mm-hmm. walk in both worlds right mermaids um and one of the things that's really, really important for all of those groups and for all of us is to look at boundaries. And when we talk about anxiety, very frequently, the first thing we start looking at is our boundaries, because. If we don't know that we can protect ourselves any time we're going to be approached, right, it's going to feel like we're going back into that burning
1: building. Absolutely.
2: So we have to start by getting educated about boundaries and practicing them where we can and learning about the kind of the the physiological architecture of boundaries. And I can talk more about that if you're if that's interesting to folks. But like, what is the substructure of boundaries that has to do with our brain and our nervous system before we get to telling, you know, telling your girlfriend, like, I don't want your books all around the house, or whatever the
1: thing right. is. <laughs> right. Yeah, that that vague fear of walking out the front door just to go to the grocery store. Um, it's that's something that we can really benefit from unpacking, talking about it. You know, what, what nobody tells us at a certain age, you're not a trapped child anymore. You have some autonomy. You can call the police if you need to.
2: Yeah. 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 And I, and I love that you're saying that because it's moving from like the, the kind of the collapsed freeze response of the nervous system, which is what an infant does. To more of a um, defense, an active defensive orienting response, which is saying no, which is calling the cops, which is taking an active role. And so when I see folks who maybe come in and they're very, Um, feeling really helpless and hopeless and unable to kind of cope with what's happening. And I work with really high-functioning people, by the way, right? People like you and me who have Mm -hmm. jobs and, you know, get the food on the table and pay our taxes. And I work with, you know, those kinds of folks who are often in what is called functional freeze. Have you heard that term before? Mm -mm. Should I unpack that? Yeah. So functional freeze is really when you are able to um, do the tasks that are required to be physically alive, right? Go to work. Uh, pay your bills, you know, get food on the table, but your nervous system is in a state such a, a freeze that you can't really experience joy or or the beauty of relationships.
1: Oh yeah, I've lived that. It's I, I call it the plexiglass. Your life is on yeah. the other side of a plexiglass That's right. window. That's right. and you can intellectually appreciate I have this, I have that, right. but you feel dead inside. That's it's just exactly. a, a gray blanket and all of the color is sucked out. And then you look around, you see other people laughing and experiencing joy. And you think I am a Martian.
2: Yeah. And what I can tell you too, is that there are more people who feel like Martians than don't. And so I think it's really interesting. There's so many people when, you know, Gabor Mate talks regularly about addiction and he talks about how addiction isn't just, you know, drugs and alcohol, what we think, right. It's any process that we can use to cope with intolerable reality, right? That might have negative consequences. And so we might have negative consequences of being in functional freeze, right? We might have those negative consequences. They might not get us living on Skid Row, but they're still negative consequences. And what I feel is really important at this time in our evolution is for those of us who are, you know, we have a, an election in the United States coming up next year. I am not terribly ambitious or hopeful <laughs> about okay. that election for many, many reasons. Um, but we we need to be having these conversations about moving, shifting the focus just from the individual and the individual's responsibility for their own mental health and their own well-being to collective solutions. Quick example, I did a book study earlier this year um, on Gabor Mate's book, The Myth of Normal, and a lot of the folks who came to that community, and I do these book studies a couple times a year where we just... Do a deep dive on a book and we and we experience it from a trauma informed lens in an embodied way, so we're not just reading it from the neck up, we're reading it in an embodied way and um one of the the points that he talks about in the myth of normal is really looking at our context and looking at um the systems that we operate in and one of the gals in the in the group who is um a registered nurse was talking about um how she in her hospital she said. If I go to one more meeting where they tell me to fucking meditate on my lunch break, I'm going to blow my brains out. They're not paying for me to do that. They're not giving me time off to do that. They're basically telling me, go meditate on your time so that you can come back and be more productive. So those of us who have any kind of power, right, and I help organizations sometimes structure, like, these kinds of well-being and employee well-being programs and, like, experiencing how to deal with vicarious trauma – you have to consider the broader social location and the broader economic positions of your of your folks if you really want to support them in healing their quote unquote anxiety don't just tell people to meditate it away like that is one way to fucking piss people off
1: wouldn't it be great if ceos spent 8 weeks before they took their new position doing the job of the lowest 10 10- jobs on the on the totem pole in that company not that it you know maybe it wouldn't change yeah. anything but I have the feeling it might
2: yeah yeah absolutely well there's you know there's this beautiful uh, you know in in Buddhist practice you know there's often talking about you imagine yourself on a there's a beautiful meditation where you imagine yourself sitting on one side of a mountain and there's a, on, a, on a mountain and there's a valley and then there's another mountain and part of the practice is imagining that you you know you are where you are in this moment and then you place yourself on the other mountain that's across from you and imagine looking back at yourself, right? To simply be in this practice of, as the our, our, um, some of our native folks will say, of walking in the other man's moccasins, right? Because yeah. we don't practice that. We're born into a certain social location. For many people, we stay in that, particularly if we come from privilege, right? We, we can, you know, maybe we're raised in a home where there were, you know, there was people owned a home, right? Like that's a kind of privilege. Um, There wasn't food scarcity. There wasn't housing scarcity, right? These are all ways that our nervous system is primed for safety, and we're not talking about that. And so when people at the the top of the food chain and the 1% are talking to those employees who aren't showing up for work on time, they can't imagine that it's because maybe they're sleeping in their cars, right? Because they've never had to do that. And so I feel... I feel like again and again and again, those of us who have interest in the common good, right? Because this is, you know, our mental well-being isn't just an individual enterprise, right? If I'm if I'm happy, but you're miserable, I'm not going to be happy, right? Eventually, I'm not going to be happy, right? Maybe for a couple of minutes, I can, you know. If you're a
1: psychopath. Right, you, if you're a psychopath. Yeah.
2: Exactly. You're right.
1: overjoyed. Right, exactly.
2: <laughs> right? And I don't even know if that's true for them, but but we we can't tolerate that on a, on a long-term basis. No. And so having those opportunities feels really really important at this stage. And so anybody who is listening, wherever whatever your place, if you're making coffee at Starbucks, if You're hosting a podcast. If you are a healer, if you are an artist, if you were on strike today, you know, out, you know, like many of your colleagues are, and and I I wholeheartedly support that, we have to be talking about systemic issues, not just from our own positions, right? But for the well-being of all, because that's what's going to be required for all of us to be well. We can't just individually be well.
1: Yeah. Let's plug your stuff. Where can people find you?
2: So um there's a great resource at palmsspringssomatics.com um mm-hmm. which is my website and at felinadenalis.com I've got a, a course um, called The Refuge of Boundaries which is a 7 week long course that really takes people through the importance of building a lifelong practice of boundary building and it's really empowering online or in person online yeah it's all online so folks from around the world can take it and have um and i've gotten some good feedback when it's been run before um and um there's a fun little doodad on the palm springs somatics.com that people can get that's um An explanation of the physiological architecture of boundaries and how it maps onto the brain. I know people love to geek out on brain stuff. Um, And when we talk about boundaries, it sounds like this very elusive, like, what are boundaries all about? So those are some fun resources. And I'm also on on Instagram at F. Thank you so much. Thanks,
1: Paul. I really enjoyed talking to her. And if it wasn't clear... During our conversation, I am a big fan and big believer in somatic experiencing, even even though on the surface it's it's so woo-woo, but man, it works. It works, or I should say it worked for me. Man, that sunset is gorgeous.
0: Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that, unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in.
2: Oh, burger
0: time.
1: With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey, and this is uh, filled out by our friend, Dissociation What Dissociation Who, um, and... They write about their ADD, knowing all that's needing to be done, going over and over in your head, but not being able to start any of them because you've got your feet in cement. About their alcoholism and drug addiction. It's like a wood-eating bug that destroys the bridges between others and you. Boy, that is a fucking great one. Wow. About being a sex crime victim feeling hands all over your body when in fact no one is in the room. Well, that is intense. Snapshot from their life. Laying peacefully in bed with my fiancé one moment to then be paralyzed by ghost tactile feelings all over my lower half, invisible hands grabbing at my legs, forcing them open, penetrating me. I exit the paralysis to grab the blanket and wrap it around me as tight as can be. I curl up into a ball, legs bent, protecting me from being penetrated with another layer of blanket, but the ghost feelings are still there, still haunting me. All the meanwhile, I'm crying, hyperventilating, and my poor fiancé trying his best to manage me and reassure that I'm safe, trying to pull me back to the moment, not the event, that my memory has blocked, but my body remembers. This is but one moment of many that still haunt me. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. That is intense. This is struggle in a sentence filled, (laughs) filled out by a guy who calls himself kazoo player for the band on the Titanic. I gotta say, they were a really underrated band, and... Yeah, I prefer their early stuff. But um I don't know, a lot of people never get into the uh the Titanic band Deep Cuts, but there's some good stuff in there. Roll out the barrels, their cover of Roll Out the Barrels. It's I guess you could say it's jazz adjacent. But it's also got I don't know, the addition of the, the banjo and the kazoo. I don't know, it gives it a nice little syncopation. He writes about his depression. I'm a radio, and all the frequencies play sad songs, but I don't even want to listen to anything. Oh, that's such a good one. Snapshot from his life. Sad and anxious all morning. Sit with the feelings and observe them so they soften. Recovery meeting at noon sort of helps. Have a small window of feeling okay before the heaviness, loneliness, remorse, longing, and fear all slide back down onto my chest. Lather, rinse, repeat. God fucking damn it. Oh, buddy. Sending you a hug, man. Sending you a hug. This is from the body shame survey filled out by a woman who calls herself toxic potato and she's in her 20s what do you like or dislike about your body and why i dislike my back my arms my boobs my entire upper body i hate having anyone behind me because it feels like they can see how huge uh, i look from behind it's not even the size so much as it's this fear of being unproportional. It feels like I'm on fire whenever I have to go in line in front of someone or have anyone behind me, really. I think because I wear a double-D bra that it makes me appear larger than I actually am. I feel like my boobs make me look fat. I don't like to wear tight clothing because I hate being stared at. I can't stand the stairs. I can't stand that the times I would go on walks wearing a tank top, I get yelled at by passing cars, honked at, screamed at. It almost never happens when I wear loose baggy clothing. So basically, if I wear anything somewhat revealing to the shape of my body, I know I'm putting myself more at risk of those things, which sucks because part of me wants to be able to feel good, feel attractive, and express myself but I feel too much shame about my stupid boobs. They've been almost nothing but a pain. I remember being a kid sick to my stomach because I knew one day I would have them. My mom had big boobs too, so it was inevitable it seemed. And once I did get them, I was in denial for a long time. I feel like having boobs has made my life worse. I feel like it's harder to make female friends. I've often had girls be mad at me for this thing I don't want and can't control. I feel like the bad uh, I feel like the bad guy forever wearing something flattering to my shape because my boobs are very noticeable, and I don't want to make anyone not like me because of it. It's like people assume I'm a bitch, I'm a slut, stupid, out to get them. but I fear that so much, but I fear that, so much, I do things to prevent it. My past experiences having boobs has made me feel like they are this huge fucking distraction, and my responsibility to keep them completely hidden. I would get dress-coated, made to go home from school so many times just for wearing things that other girls wore, just because of how it looked on me. It made me feel horrible, discouraged me from wanting to try, embarrassed, humiliated, like a freak— took a lot of courage for me to wear things that weren't just t-shirts and jeans. Why are we, as girls, always told, told our bodies are distracting? I hate the stares, the back pain, the lack of clothing options that fit correctly, how hard and expensive it is to get a good bra. I hate being the only girl around all of my brothers uncomfortable about my body. I hate hugging family members. I hate getting ready any time I have to go anywhere. I'm currently trying to lose weight for the millionth time, to be honest, semi-starving myself. I'm not overweight, but I want to be smaller so that I can have smaller boobs. I fear once I do lose more that they will look saggy and unattractive, but I don't care anymore. I just want to feel like I can get ready, put anything out on without having to stare at my reflection with disgust and hatred. I resent men. I'm angry. I can't even explain why, but I'm so fucking angry at men. I just resent and want them to understand what it's like. What makes me even angrier is I know they probably don't care enough to try and probably won't ever get it. I'm sorry if this was offensive. This is not offensive at all. Uh, It's just how I feel and have felt weird for me to go on about my tits for such a long time but it's the thing i'm most ashamed about uh like i'm being dramatic but it feels like a curse except i have people telling me i'm lucky and that they'd kill to have this curse thank you for sharing that and that sounds really fucking awful really awful and especially because you know like if you if you have a you know a medical condition you know, like diabetes or cancer or something, people aren't misinterpreting it and going, well, you know, look at it this way. But you're having this situation that you've lived with for so long that is very negative for you. And I feel for you. I feel for you. And fuck people that, uh, that judge you. You like that? How I pushed them out of the way and judged them. That's how I work. This is from the Love Survey filled out by Frankie. And they write, I love watching my dog sleep with her face smushed into the blanket. Fully let go into dreams and feeling safe. I love watching my plants grow. New leaves sprouting. Seeing them flourish and happy like I'm doing something right. I love driving. The process That's when i'm in the moment listening to good sad moving music loud and nothing else to do but drive and sing and this last one just baffles me i love house duties vacuuming mowing the lawn more of those in the moment times when i can just focus and go through the motions and not stress as much Boy, would I love to get to that place where house duties don't feel like when the fuck is this going to be over so I can do something fun. Thank you for those. This is from the I shouldn't feel this way survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself showgirl, and she's in her 20s. Uh, How would you like people to think of you? I'd like people to think of me as someone who's authentic and beautiful inside and out. Someone who leaves her mark on the world in some substantial way. How does it feel writing that? Sometimes I feel like people think the opposite of what I'd like them to think. Um, I'm supposed to feel confident about my dreams, but I don't. I feel like I'll be misunderstood. I have many artistic endeavors I'd love to pursue. I love to paint, sing, and I dream of performing. The reason I feel misunderstood is because I want to be a burlesque performer. It's... At most times, a very risque art form. I sometimes question this dream because I fear the backlash I might receive for putting myself out there like that. I'm in a society where women are always put down for expressing their sexuality. I'd like to think I have tough skin, but it's hard for me to deal with any type of disrespect. I've been looked at as a promiscuous girl, mainly by people from my high school. Unfortunately, because I lacked proper boundaries with guys at the time. My mother is a very open sexual person, openly sexual person, so I guess my actions mirrored hers. I was very young, probably around preteens, when I told her I wanted to be a burlesque dancer. I watched the movie Burlesque with Christina Aguilar and Cher, and I fell in love with everything about it. Her reaction was a bit shocked, but she didn't shoot the idea down like any other mother would. She always accepted it and never judged me, because that's her vibe. I appreciate that about her, but today as a grown woman, I often feel shame for being like my mother. I fear that I'll never be truly loved because of my past decisions and what I dream of doing for my future. If I become a burlesque dancer, I'm afraid family and people... I know, would look at me and think she was slutty then and she's slutty now. I'm discouraged because of the potential interactions I don't consent to with people who'd watch me perform. I enjoy the attention, but only on, and this is in caps, my terms, and in a respectful way. I plan on finding a sex therapist to talk about these feelings and my past to really figure out my sexual expression and to figure out if burlesque is something I really want to pursue. Um... And when you're looking for a sex therapist, uh, I'd, I'd encourage you to look for what they call a CSAT, although the name might be different in uh, different states, but it stands for Certified uh, Sex uh, Addiction Therapist. And on the surface, that may sound like, well, I don't have a sex addiction. Why would I be going them to them? Well, they deal with a lot more than just addiction. Uh, The psychology of sexuality and uh, expression and helping navigate um, what is healthy for you. And I think think that's a great idea. How does it make you feel writing your real feelings out? I'm very emotional. I have to understand that I'm more than just my body and looks, but society thinks otherwise when it's on display in a way that I want it to be. Do you think you're abnormal for feeling what you do? Sometimes. My mother's a big advocate for living life the way you want to live it. Middle fingers up to whoever thinks otherwise. I said I feel shame for being like her, but I do wish I had her confidence. Would knowing other people feel the same way make you feel better about yourself? it would make me feel so much better. Well, I have read 9,000 shame and secret surveys. And I can tell you, you are far from alone, far, far, far from alone. And I'm glad you, I'm glad you filled that out. This is uh, from the Shame and Secret survey I filled out by a guy who calls himself Semi Retired Beer League Dropout. Uh, he identifies as straight. He's in his 20s. He says that he was raised in a stable and safe environment, never been sexually, physically, or emotionally abused. Darkest thoughts. I sometimes feel like my empathy levels can approach zero. I don't have this compulsion whatsoever, but I've had intrusive thoughts. About what it would be like to kill or sexually assault someone and there is sometimes a deep reptilian feeling in the pit of my stomach that responds with pleasure darkest secrets when i was 17 i went on a site like chat roulette there was a beautiful woman on the other webcam who said they would strip naked on the condition that i strip down for her and spread my ass cheeks so of course I gave it a shot. A minute later, her webcam switched to a video of what I had just done. Turns out there was no woman, only a scammer from Nigeria, who coldly mocked me with my video looping in the background. I was horrified when they mentioned that they downloaded the video and they could somehow find my Facebook pro, And they had somehow found my Facebook profile. They asked for a $1,000 wire through Western Union immediately. Otherwise, they would send the video to a batch of my Facebook contacts, including my aunt, some of my classmates, my piano teacher, among others. I was completely crushed, and it felt like my social life just got nuked. As I was an anxious, insecure boy raised on sexual puritanism, I tried to wire the money with my mom's debit card to cover my ass, pun intended. Then, I fortunately realized I could maybe play the underage card, so I threatened to contact their local Nigerian authorities because I was 17, which worked, surprisingly. The next day, I I overheard my mom talking with her bank to successfully dispute the fraudulent transaction. I never came forward about it. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I think an orgy with friends feels the most powerful. It could be an incredible experience of feeling like a true part of something larger than yourself, or it could sabotage everything. Sharing that makes me feel both aroused and icky. Thank you for that. Aroused and icky. Is that a t-shirt? Is that the name of a band? Is that the name of a classy nightclub? A speakeasy? Have you been too aroused and icky? Oh, they're martinis. Oh, my God, so creative. Have you shared these things with others? Shared a few of these thoughts with my ex. She generally responded with understanding, which I find relieving. How do you feel after writing these things down? Relieved to an extent feels like a small weight has been lifted in a way well i appreciate you sharing that stuff there is i don't know about you guys but such a catharsis in sharing the parts of ourselves that we just we want to take to the grave i appreciate you taking the time to share that this is uh, a shame and secret survey filled out by uh, falenia and She identifies as straight. She's in her 30s, Uh, says that she was raised in a totally chaotic environment, never been sexually abused, but been emotionally abused. She writes, I aborted his baby at the last minute because I was terrified of being a parent with him. He hated me and I hated him. He made sure that I loathed myself as much as he did. I had just moved in with him from another city was unemployed and completely dependent on him. I was not able to process the abortion in a healthy way, and this caused a lot of trauma that has been affecting me for years, long after the breakup. I've been sober fifteen months, kudos, and just recently started somatic experiencing therapy. I love the the, the just uh, what's the word for it? Serendipitous moments when the therapy the uh surveys are just timed either next to each other or with the uh, the interview just started somatic experiencing therapy and it has been really intense peeling back layer upon layer of trauma that occurred before the abortion ever happened cravings are going wild i want food sugar grease i want rye shots red wine a pack of fresh smokes that new pair of boots i saw in an ad sex with a stranger. He's happily married now with a baby and a great job. I don't believe in karma. Any positive experiences with abusers? He loved me so much at first, I thought. Had a shrine of pictures of me. Bought me gifts. Made passionate love. Held my hand and loved to talk with me and hear my thoughts. Stood up for me. It complicates how I feel about love and relationships and has made me very anxious and clingy or icy and cruel with subsequent partners. Darkest thoughts. I hate how all of my friends have kids. I think they're selfish assholes for bringing life onto this earth. The human race needs to fade away into extinction. But I smile and pretend it's all so cute and wonderful, even though I think they've become so utterly boring because of their children. And my life has become smaller and sadder without them as their whole selves. Darkest secrets. I just had my second abortion. I felt relieved afterwards, no guilt whatsoever, and not sad and crushed like I had been the first time. My body remembered, though, and I paid for it in a severe mental breakdown. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. I fantasize about being gang-raped by disgusting, unattractive, middle-aged men. I guess I figure it's not that weird for women to have messed-up fantasies. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish that I could get better. I wish that someday my agoraphobia will be cured and I can travel all over the place again. I wish that I was able to make big decisions about my career or my relationship without being terrified of having another mental breakdown. I wish I could have a drink without getting out of control. Have you shared these things with others? I've shared this with friends and family. I'm trying not to be ashamed and getting the help I need. Good for you. That that is brave. That is brave. How do you feel after writing these things down? Good. Glad I uh good and glad. I hope it resonates with someone. I am sure that it resonates with many, many people. And I appreciate you sharing all that. This is also from the Shame and Secret survey, and this is filled out by who is this filled out by? Let's find out. This is filled out by, where's their name? Oh, uh, by a, where's the gender? I believe this is filled out by a woman uh, who calls herself OK. She identifies as straight. She's in her 50s, uh, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Uh, she writes, Dad, age 12 or 13, I don't remember anything, just him coming in, standing over the bed during the day, and me pretending to be asleep with a book. I remember the shirt I was wearing, his mumbling and fumbling. It progressed into night visits that I don't let myself remember. My bedroom door had no lock, but I cobbled up a thick twine and nails so he could not get in. He swore and stomped off. Sister, aged four-ish, she covered the windows with heavy blankets. I assume you mean you were four. She covered the windows with heavy blankets. Uh, Stuff in bed that I don't remember details, but being held by the wrist by the door and threatened to never tell. She fought with my siblings all the time, but never me. I confronted her last year, some 55 years later, and I almost collapsed in the floor, I was sobbing and shaking so hard. She made me sit on the sofa before I collapsed. Then she struggled up from her chair. She was disabled and sat next to me and held me and kept saying over and over that she didn't remember, but that she was sorry. So sorry she hurt me that she never meant to. I sobbed into her shoulder until I could function again. We talked and she said she was abused by our older sister. It helped, but I still feel rage sometimes it was worse than dad because we all knew he was crazy hers felt like a deeper betrayal she's been physically and emotionally abused ex-husband now deceased pushed pulled my hair threw a cup at me i hate him for it but still live still love him too a complicated grief any positive experiences with abusers yes all three could be loving attentive and supportive but had a dark side that destroyed a part of me. Darkest thoughts. I think of punching them in the face, kinking them, leaving them bloody, all of them. Darkest secrets. I wished my husband dead, and then he actually died six weeks later. Sexual fantasies, most powerful to you. Threesomes. How does it feel Uh, sharing that? Sick. I don't think there's anything sick about that. Um, What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to and why? I fantasize writing a book about the abuse and being interviewed by Paul Gilmartin and broadcasting to the world what those motherfuckers did to me. I would tell them that it is why I am 200 pounds overweight and probably headed for an early death because of it. I would tell my mother that it was her responsibility to get her children away from a psychotic abuser and that she hurt me by turning me into her parent and a people-pleasing monster. I would tell my sister to fuck off and never contact me again until she gets into therapy and starts making amends to her children who she emotionally abused. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I could just forgive them and and begin to fill the hole in my heart that they left. I wish my soul were not so tired that I could handle my son's mental illness that he seems to have inherited from his grandfather. I would like not to feel so alone or so whiny. Have you shared these things with others? Yes, some therapists and also one of my sons who wanted to know my story. I had emphasized good touch, bad touch a lot so he knew something was up. It helped, but the void remains. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel like I did after a good therapy session. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences. Try to make your life good no matter what happened to you. Be of service and do not pass the abuse on. Thank you for that. That that is That is some intense shit. Wow. I can't imagine how conflicted you must feel when the holidays roll around and everybody's talking about family and yeah, that's got to be hard. And then finally, this is from the love survey and this is filled out by Gilly Beans and uh, they write, I love the goofy gallop my cat does when she runs around the corner to greet me when I get home from work. I love the feeling of fresh sheets and soft jammies right after a warm shower. I love fuzzy socks on a cool night. I love a Thai iced tea on a hot summer day. I love the beach and thinking about all the mysterious creatures that live in the ocean. Oh, I love that one. I love when work closes for a snowy day when it's a really nasty storm and the extra cozy feeling of hibernating for the rest of the day. Those are so great. And that last one, isn't, isn't that just what we're looking for? With our with our shitty coping mechanisms, it's just that feeling of hibernating. Of well, I suppose some people are looking to feel connected and they're gregarious, but I think for a lot of us, the unknown is so terrifying, and we just want that cocoon. Uh, yeah. Well, those of you that filled out your surveys, I really appreciate you taking the time to to do it. And those of you who have um, joined patreon no matter what tier you're at i appreciate it you know you can join for as little as a dollar a month and every little bit helps um and if you uh if you're struggling and you think you're alone and you're the only person who's feeling what you're feeling um you're not you're not our outsides may be vastly different from person to person but what we're feeling inside is so universal. And uh, I think it's, it's finding our tribe, our family that we can be safe with that is maybe the purpose of life. Can I end the podcast on an existential question like I'm in uh, junior high? I'm gonna do that. Can I do that? I just did. Never forget you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.
2: Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some
1: weird way.